Welcome to A Real Nurse, the podcast, and I'm your host, Angela Thomas. I am standing up on the seashore. A ship at my side spreads her white sails to the morning breeze and starts for the blue ocean. She's an object of beauty and strength. I stand and I watch her until at length she hangs like a speck of white cloud just where the sea and sky come to mingle with each other. Then someone at my side says, There, she is gone. Gone where? Gone from my sight. That is all. She is just as large and massed and hull and spar as she was when she left my side and she is just as able to bear the load of living freight to her destined port. Her diminished size is in me, not in her. And just at the moment when someone at my side says, there, she is gone. There are other eyes watching her coming and other voices ready to take up the glad shout. Here she comes. And that is dying. That was a poem um, that is based in a book that is often used by hospice nurses called Gone From My Sight by Karen Corns, who's a hospice nurse. And it was authored by Henry Van Dyke, uh, who's credited for the poem, but actually Reverend Luther F. Beecher wrote the poem. But because Karen, um, I'm sorry, Barbara Corns uh, gave credit to Henry Van Dyke, he's often credited for writing the poem, but basically it's, um, a poem that talks about, um, how, uh, Reverend Beecher, um, thought death, uh, or the experience of, of dying was, it was passing away from this side, going to the other side. And, that when people that we care about transition from this side, they leave with us valuable tools and then they are welcomed by previous loved ones as they transition over to the other side. And so that is the premise of her book, Gone From Sight, uh, uh, and her interpretation of what the dying experience is like, and then she goes into the stages, the physical uh, stages of death. And so, for those of us who have um, provided hospice care, we call it the little blue book, and we often um, give that to families. Uh, I often think that uh, it's given too late, um, and so. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation about death um, and dying with you tonight. Um, So, welcome back to 
a real nurse the podcast where tonight um we're going to tackle a subject that is often uh not uh discussed and it is a topic that is often feared um according to research um it is estimated that nearly 150,000 people worldwide die per day. And out of that 150,000 people that die worldwide, seven to 8,000 people die in the U.S. daily. And so if we look at that number, that means that per week, more than 1 million people a week die. And so with that staggering number, uh, it just is curious to me that it's still a taboo uh, subject or something that we just stick our head in the sand and we don't want to deal with it until the very last moment. And I get it. It's scary. None of us want to think about the idea that we will no longer be here. And so I question, is it because we want to live forever? Or is it because we fear the unknown? Because let's face it, no one that has died has been able to come back and tell us when we die, is that really it? We die, our body decompose, that's it. Or for those who have religious beliefs and ties and, and believe that there's another life afterwards, you know, that we're going to have a better existence and that, um, there's a different, um, there's a heaven or a a place of peace and glory and utopia. Or perhaps could it be the fear of hell? Uh, instead of a place of utopia, do we feel as though perhaps we've missed a mark? And so instead of death being just it, that our bodies decay and that's the end of it, or instead of us making it to a place of utopia, we make it to a place of eternal suffering. And so because we don't know and because no one can come back and tell us, we fear that there's punishment. And so that plays into it. Whatever the case may be with the statistics that I've shared of uh, 150,000 per week worldwide and seven to 8,000 in the United States, then And I mean, I'm sorry, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, one hundred and fifty thousand per day, and seven to eight thousand per day in the United States deaths. Then, 
regardless of what our anxiety is as to why we um, fear and put off uh, the discussion of death and dying and does and do not make it a part of our um, planning process in our lives. Uh, we have to, just like anything else that we fear, we have to educate ourselves and it's a personal journey because I believe uh, that there's a difference between fearing death and not being ready to die. And I feel like it's okay not to be ready to die, but I don't think it's healthy to, to fear it to a point that we don't prepare and we don't um, educate uh, ourselves in regards so that we can have a um, a plan in place for those uh, who care about us uh, so that they know that when that time come in our life, what it is that our wishes are. And too often I've seen people wait until the very last minute um, to try to enact a plan and it costs them valuable time and resources or uh, it strikes so quickly that that um, it creates undue hardship uh, for them and their families. And again, valuable time is lost when that time could be spent uh, with them uh, really being engaged with each other as a family. And so people think it's weird when I say it, but I have had the pleasure of being a part of some of the most amazing transitions. And uh, it is something that I pray for that when my time does come, that I'm fortunate enough that my transition can be as beautiful as some of the ones that I've had the privilege of being a part of. And I've had some that were not so pleasant and for various reasons. But I think it's all in how that individual views death. Um, I've had some people that they had worked through their process of death and dying and they understood that death was a circle of life. It was just as much a part of living and they be it through their educational journey and research or their spiritual or combination of the both and they believe that when they left here, that a part of them was still here because they had uh, imparted enough of who they were, the essence of who they are in their loved ones. Uh, and that was going to carry on for generations, um, as well as that they had a spiritual a relationship with a higher power that they knew that they knew that they were going to a better place and that the place to which they were going would be better than 
this earth that they were leaving. And they knew that without a shadow of a doubt. And so I, uh, and this is from various cultural, uh, um, backgrounds and, um, religious beliefs to where I've been a part of some transitions to where they had loved ones around and there was singing and praying. And other times it was, um, food and, uh, it was more like a celebration and families came together and yes, they were, uh, we're going to miss, miss that individual, but it was a time of great celebration and they were rejoicing. And, um, some of the experience, like I said, was just mind blowing that they could be so rejoiceful and happy that that person was going to, uh, no longer be suffering or be at peace. And, um, it, it just, I'll never forget some of those experiences. And I, I'd like to say that what I'm about to share is just my personal experiences from a personal and professional level. Uh, my goal is that hopefully I will uh, cause listeners to start questioning uh, why it is that they either do not think about or fear death and why they put it on the back burner and get to a point to where they no longer fear it and understand that be, that even though they're not ready to die, uh, it's okay to plan and put things in place. Uh, so that when that time does come, then um, their family and our loved ones are fully aware of their wishes. Uh, everything is taken care of. And that by doing so, it makes um, the grieving process um, easier for their loved ones so that uh, there's no need for them to be second guessing or trying to figure out what it is that that individual would want in regards to um, health care needs and end-of-life decisions. And so with that, we're gonna get um, we're gonna get started. So in episode one I shared that my initial um, relationship with death as a child was uh, pretty sheltered in that uh, my elders really did not um, talk about death uh, to us as kids. And we really did not attend funeral services. And when we had a loved one in the family to die, we were simply told that that individual had gone to be with the Lord. Uh, and my first time um, really being up close and personal with a dead body 
I was in high school, I attended a um, high school um, for those who sought a career uh, in healthcare, be it nursing, pharmacy, or going to med school. And at that time, I was on track um, with the goal to go to med school. And so we had gone to the um, Harris County Mark uh, on a field trip. Um, and uh, we uh, saw our cadavers and they walked us through the process of uh what happens when an individual donate their body to science and the autopsy process. And uh, so that was my first time really seeing um, a a body. Um, But the real experience with the death and dying process from being with someone uh, and spending time with them alive and then them no longer being here occurred during my um, nursing school rotation. Um, I had been assigned a patient and back uh, during my time uh, going to nursing school, uh, the patient had to give consent to uh, having a nursing student. And this lady was gracious enough to say that she was okay with having um, a nursing student. And I cannot remember her name. I was trying to rack my brain to remember her name. Not that I would have shared it, but I just wanted to remember her name, but I can clearly remember her face. And she was an older uh, Caucasian lady who was suffering from COPD. And uh, she was at the end stage um, of the disease process. And um, I had been taking care of her for about a week or so. And uh, I remember uh, when they called the code blue. And I remember uh, my uh, preceptor uh, telling me um to stand uh, in the corner of the room and I watched the code process so I could learn uh, what all was involved in uh, that process. And needless to say, she didn't make it. And then uh, my, uh, my preceptor told me, she said, we have to do post-mortem care on the body. And she explained to me what that was. And uh, I notified my clinical instructor um, because anytime we would do a new skill, we had to notify our clinical instructor um, so she was aware and get checked off on it. And I remember that process. And I remember thinking, wow, earlier in the morning, I helped that lady with a bath and combing her hair. And now I was bathing her body again and preparing her to go down to the morgue. And so in a matter of hours, um, life was gone. And uh, I really, in all honesty, 
honesty, um, still did not quite fully uh, comprehend uh, the fragility of life, Uh, you know, and nor the emotional impact of it. Um, but that was my first experience, uh, of death up close and personal, personal. And then after I graduated from uh, nursing school, my first job was pediatric hematology oncology. So I work with children who had, uh, cancer and, um, I can tell you, uh, there is something totally different from uh, dealing with death of adults than it is with children. However, in my personal experience, I can tell you that children um, deal with death far better than adults. And um, maybe it's because they haven't learned fear, especially when they're little, like, um, I would say under the age of maybe in my, this, again, this is just my personal experience, but under the age of say 13, they really have not learned fear. And I learned a great deal about death in watching how kids, um, dealt with it. And when I, um, worked with, um, pediatric hematology kids, a lot of times when they weren't doing well, the parents didn't want them to know. And the doctors that I worked with, the group of doctors that I worked for at the time, did not believe in that. They believed in that they had gone through all of the chemo and all of the uh, various procedures involved in treating it. And they did not believe uh, in holding that information from them. And they believed in delivering it to them in a way that they could understand. And we had clinical psychologists and, and we had uh, child play therapy to where it could be delivered to them on a level that they could comprehend and understand. And my observation was that they de- dealt with it in a way far better than what adults did and even their parents. And oftentimes what I found was that the kids could tell us before we told them that they were dying or or that they were not going to make it. And I've even had experiences to where the child uh, was at the end stage of death and the parents, understandably so, was just not ready and could not begin to even tell that kid that it was okay, that they was prepared to let them go. And um, I remember uh, a case in particular, and I do remember this kid's name, um, in which 
her dad just could not. He and she just was having a very hard time. And um, she loved, loved McDonald's French fries. Absolutely loved them. Her favorite thing. And this kid hadn't eaten in days. And um, she whispered and told him um, that she wanted some French fries. And he got so excited because she hadn't had anything to eat in days. And he ran down because we had a McDonald's in the hospital. And he ran down to get the French fries. And by the time he got back from the French fries, she had gone. And I think it was her way of getting him out of the room so that she could transition. And so, um, again, just observation and watching uh, that. And then I, uh, after three or four years of of doing that, I needed a break from, from kids and dying. And I transitioned and did adult oncology and I got a totally different perspective in watching adults. And I, again, I watched some adults who, because of their own personal journey, um, was not afraid of death, death and they viewed it as a journey and they had made their preparation, not only, for things on this side in regards of their personal affairs, but whatever their belief was, they was prepared and they welcomed the transition. And then I had others who um, just fought it tooth and nail and refused to even uh, acknowledge the fact of what the physicians uh, was saying to them and would not prepare or would not um, deal with it any kind of way. Uh, and it's, it's just uh, something that made me uh, curious. And I also had to examine myself because even though I worked in that arena, I had to come to the realization that deep down inside I too feared death in many regards. And I had to recognize that it came from my upbringing because my mother uh, feared death. She didn't, she didn't attend funerals. Uh, And even though when I became an adult, if someone in our family died, I would be her representative. It was more because I was in healthcare and I wasn't afraid of a dead body. And there's a difference. I wasn't afraid of a dead body, but I did have a fear of death. And as I began to examine why I had the fear of death, and then as I uh, begin to uh, peel back those layers, and then as I uh, begin to attend different seminars, because as I felt like in order to be able to help my patients through the journey, I had to get a better understanding of it. And then because of my spiritual belief and uh, my growth spiritually, then I came to the realization that um, I didn't fear it anymore. Um, I got to a place where I felt like me fearing death was not going to stop it. Whenever my time arrived, I could be scared all I want. It's not going to stop it. Now, 
I don't want to be misunderstood of saying that when that time comes, that there's not going to be any trepidation. That's not what I'm saying. Because we all have concern or or anything or fear of the unknown. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't get to a point that it paralyzes us to where we cannot even fathom that it's going to happen to us. And, and because of that, we don't put things in place because too many times, and I've shared this probably ad nauseum about how many times people have not put things in place and it creates turmoil for families, have ripped families apart, or they've been put on life support and families don't even know which direction to go. And then there's, there are family fights because half the people say, I want to take them off life support. The other half don't. So making those decisions. And the other issues issue is that as a society, um, because there's been so many advances in healthcare in regards to different procedures and stuff to prolong life, we're now finding ourselves in a situation of we have the ability to prolong life, but it's not necessarily a quality of life. And so what happens and who's going to care for individuals afterwards. And so doctors and healthcare professionals have been trained that our goal is to preserve life at all costs, all costs, but who's paying the cost and what does that life look like? And is it a life that that individual really wants. And so that's why it's important to really examine death and dying, what quality of life look like for you so that just because the technology is there, if they use the technology on you, we have to be educated enough that when we're faced with the dilemma to ask the appropriate questions so that we can make the appropriate decisions to know whether or not that is the right choice for us or are we okay with saying I'm okay with transitioning and I think oftentimes we don't dive into the deep end of the discussion because of our fear of dying. And again, I don't know the true answer. Is it because we, we fear the unknown of it? Or is it because we really feel like we want to be here forever? knowing that realistically there is no such thing. Um, So uh, again, it's a a personal journey um, and everybody has to um, decide for themselves um, what that looks like in order to get to that level of understanding that 
you can be at peace with knowing that your day will come and not fear it. And that it that by making the decision, it doesn't mean that you're ready to go, but you you're 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 not afraid, afraid of going. Um and then how do we uh as care providers when we're dealing with our loved ones, how do we recognize death so that we can prepare ourselves to know when it is time to let that individual go? And that's why I really do like um the blue book that uh is called Gone From Sight. The Dying Experience. And there are several other books that are out there um, that offer insight into the stages of death. Because one of the things that that I see as a nurse, and I'm quite sure a lot of my colleagues can uh, verify, is that oftentimes <clears throat> I think that people see it, but because it's a loved one, it's easier to focus in on other things versus the reality that that person is actually dying. And one of the things is that usually when a person is getting to the end stage of death, they will start to withdraw from family, friends, and loved ones. Um, And then after they start withdrawing, they also will not eat as much. And usually that's the first thing that family will focus in on is that that individual is not eating because we know that you have to have substance to survive. And so the family will become fixated on they're not eating, they're not eating, they're not eating. Well, when the body begins to get ready to make that transition, it does it does this miraculous thing and in, in that it doesn't need as much nutrition. It's not burning as much as many calories because the majority of the time they're sleeping all the time. And then it gets really confusing because that person can go days and weeks of being withdrawn and not really participating. And then all of a sudden they'll get this burst sometimes they'll get up and they'll ask for food they haven't eaten in weeks. Sort of like what I shared earlier about my patient who asked her dad for French fries. In in her particular case, she didn't even eat the French fries, but I've had patients who um, will have this burst of energy to where you think that they've turned the corner they're getting better. There have been situations to where there's been a vigil around the clock where family's been coming in, family has come from out of town, and all of a sudden this person gets up and they'll even ask to get their hair fixed or whatever. They ask for particular foods. They're eating, they're doing everything. And um, everybody will think, oh, they've turned the corner. And everybody is hopeful and everybody is rejoicing. And they think that this person is a-okay. And then in a matter of a day to a week, that individual is no longer here. And then everybody is shocked. And it's because they've missed the procession of the stages of dying. Um, Usually when they have that burst, like I say, it'll last for a while and then they'll go back into going back to sleeping all the time. 
they'll withdraw. Sometimes they will ask for people who they haven't seen a long time because maybe they need to make an amends or they will um, start being very sentimental and uh, expressing things to people. Or maybe they'll say things like, I want you to have this, or they'll start giving things away. They're separating themselves from things on this side. It is it's no longer important to them anymore. Um, and then there, you, you'll start see, start seeing changes in their, um, breathing pattern. And some individuals will get a rattle and we call that the death rattle. Um, and then, um, as it progresses, they get closer, they all start having, uh, erratic breathing where they may breathe. Um, then they'll go, um, seconds to a minute before they breathe again. We call it chain stoke breathing. Um, there'll be changes in skin color, um, bluish nail beds, bluish lips. Uh, sometimes depending on the pigmentation of the individual, they'll have, uh, what we call modeling where they'll have the bluishness in the skin tone, uh, of the skin. Um, and then eventually they pass. And, um, those are typically the stages of of death. And, and one more thing that I forgot to say, oftentimes they will start, they will become restless and they will pick at things. They'll pick at the covers or they will be reaching up in the sky or they, sometimes they will become fixated and usually they'll become fixated in like in the corner of a room or oftentimes we think they're hallucinating. They'll, um, mumble or they'll start having conversation with a person who's no longer here. I know with my uncle, he was having a conversation with my grandfather who had passed years ago. I mean, a full-fledged conversation and his eyes was fixated uh, in the corner of the room. And then one day he said to me, he said, you don't see him? And I'm like, see who? And he said, you don't, you don't, you don't see him? And I'm like, no. Um, and so I've heard that. And then I've, like I said, I've been a part of transitions to where I've, I've, I've seen it and I've heard it. Um, and, um, so that's another sign, uh, uh, of, of impending death. And when we start seeing those things, that's a sign to us. And one of the hardest things is to see that. But I often say to my families that that is the time when we have to say and tell that individual that it's okay. Um, and I, I've had to do it, uh, more times than I care to on a personal level, uh, with my, with my mother, uh, with my father, uh, and, um, with an uncle, um, to say to them that it's, it's okay, that their job here is done and that they had, uh, provided me with enough, uh, instruction for me to be able to carry on their legacy and the things that they instilled in me for me to stand and to carry on and to pass it on 
through generations. And sometimes they just wait on that, that it's okay because sometimes, you know, we believe that that person is stuck between wanting to be here and making sure that the people that they care about is okay versus transitioning on and going to a place where they're no longer suffering. Death is painful. It, it, it really is painful. And it's extremely painful when it comes unexpectedly in a tragedy out of nowhere. It's really, really, really hard. And there's no preparation you you can you can do for that, um, other than go through the grieving process. And all I can say, whether it comes unexpected unexpectedly, or if we know it's coming through a disease process, is that it's okay to seek counseling. And all too often, we think we got it that we don't need the counseling. And I say that we have to take advantage of of counseling. And if you can't afford counseling, there are support groups oftentimes that are community-based driven and that is of no cost to you, especially if the individual died from a particular disease process such as cancer, um, cardiac disease, stroke, or dementia. There are grief um, um, programs to which all you have to do is contact that particular foundation, like the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, uh, the Alzheimer's program, and find out in your community if there's a uh, grief counseling organization. And oftentimes this pre-COVID, a lot of the hospitals had the foundations where they would meet in the hospital and have a once a week or once every other week um, grief uh, session meeting. And now there, a lot of times it's going through Zoom. Um, I know a lot of uh, churches have different uh, support groups. And I know that now with COVID, they're doing a lot of things through Zoom um, meetings and getting online to provide the counseling. And I advise that you take advantage of it. I recently lost a patient and um, she had a very hard time dealing with it. And it was getting to the point that um, her condition began to deteriorate very quickly. And I saw that the physicians were not going to be honest and tell her, and it's not intentional. Again, they are trained to preserve life at all costs, but her situation was terminal. And no matter what they did, none of it was curative. It was only going to prolong it. And I went and had a conversation with her and, um, she looked at me and I knew um, that spirituality was very important to her. And we basically had a conversation just by looking at one another. And she finally said, um, everybody wants to go to heaven, but no one want to take the route necessary to get there. And I, I, I think that that, I'm going to just leave it at that. I think that's uh, profound enough. Uh, so I hope 
that um, I've said enough to kind of tickle us or push us enough to want to investigate why we fear death and what we're going to do to address it in us as individuals to take our own personal journey into investigating our own fears and what we will do on an individual level to get to the point that while we may not be ready to go, we will be prepared to go. to share to many is probably going to seem very um, unreal, but um, I said that I was going to address this from a professional and a personal standpoint. The first personal death that was very um, traumatic for me was the death of my mother who died at the age of 56 and it was very unexpected. My firstborn was five and my youngest son, my second son was six months old. And when you think of 56, which is just a year older than I am now, is really the prime of life. We had just christened my six-month-old. The night after the christening, she started having some abdominal pain. Long story short, uh, come to find out she had a small bowel obstruction, went in the hospital, had surgery, recovered, and was making preparation to go home. And the day before discharge, she had a massive heart attack and ended up on life support. Now, mind you, remember I said my mother was afraid of death, so we never had any sort of discussion. And she ended up on life support. But because of my medical background, knowing that she had had a massive heart attack, I knew that um, her being on life support uh, was just a temporary fix that there was going to be no positive outcome. So um, had to make the decision uh, to take her off of life support. And I knew that from an intellectual standpoint, but that's not what my heart understood nor wanted. Uh, But nonetheless, was put in that position to have to make that decision. And again, um, my mother uh, grew up in the church, had been in the church all her life, and I knew that she was a believer. And one of the things that I knew I had to do was stand at her bedside and tell her that she had finished her course and that she had provided me with the tools necessary to raise her grandchildren 
in a manner in which she would be proud of and that she had given me the tools necessary to do so. Um, then it was her oldest brother who was diagnosed with lung cancer. Um, and then he put me in a very um, unique situation in that he didn't want anyone in the family to know that he was sick. And for 15 months, I carried his secret. And it was just he and I on the journey of him going through chemo and radiation and not until it metastasized and it was in his bone and right before it metastasized to his brain did he consent to go ahead and tell his mother and his siblings because I told him it was unfair and they needed to have time to be with him and that was a very hard hard journey um and just watching him navigate uh, through the journey of coming to grips with his uh, mortality was a unique experience. And then um, the next experience was my sister being murdered. And I found out by the morning news, getting up, getting ready for work and the morning news being on and it was on the news and that's how I found out um, and having to go to her home and to see blood and bone fragments um, of not only her but the um, assailant um, and then having to go to the morgue and identify her body and so no matter how long I had been in healthcare, um, that's a totally different um, perspective. Uh, that's personal. And um, I'll never forget the smell of blood uh, and, uh, and the horror uh, of the scene. Um, and then to learn the horror of her suffering. Um, and then um, in 2011, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I had to look at my own um, mortality and I had to take care of putting my affairs in order because I, at the time, my children were minors and I did not want their father to have to deal with having to deal with them and then handle my arrangements. I went and took care of my arrangements. I made sure that our wheels were updated. All the insurance information was um, in place and um, handled things to make life easier for him in the event that um, I did not um, survive. And then um, seven months ago, as a healthcare worker, I was impacted by COVID and came very close to being placed on a ventilator and was not sure uh, what the outcome of that situation would be. Um, and my affairs, I keep them updated um, and I keep them 
uh, adjusted. I try to look and, and update things at least every five years. Um, but it was very real that I uh, was faced with that again. And just the various experiences, not only personally, but professionally in watching various situations with families and patients and I know that death is traumatic and I know that um, if not dealing with it and not facing it what scars and what devastation it can leave, leave. but I also know uh, as I alluded to earlier that when you face it and when you understand that it is a part of life it doesn't have to be always ugly um, and that it can be uh, a unique experience and it is just my hope that and I shared the personal aspects of it because I don't want people to feel as though I'm just coming at it from a professional standpoint and totally devoid of the emotional um, part of death and what it can do to you. So it is my sincere hope again that um, you, the listener, can... um, Find the courage to really uh, start the journey on uh, discovery into death and dying. And if you are a care provider, um, ensure that um, you can recognize the signs um, and know when it is time to make the appropriate decision so that those that are closest to you do not suffer um, because we are afraid to let go. We often think that the greatest expression of love is holding on and it is my personal opinion that the greatest expression of love is knowing when to let go. So I'd like to leave you with some resources um, to further help you along in your journey. One of the leading experts in death and dying is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in uh, several of her books. Uh, One is on uh, death and dying. Uh, The other one is... um, The Journey of Death and Dying, but she has a series of books. But again, it's by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. You can find the books either on her uh, website at www.ekrfoundation.org 
or across Amazon, and I will post the link on my page. You can also check out um, the Little Blue Book, which is called Gone From My Sight by Barbara Corns, and it's Gone From My Sight, The Dying Experience. Uh, another article is The Four Human Tasks of Dying, The Dying Person and Their Loved Ones. It's an article by uh, Malcolm Payne, and uh, that can be found at www.selfgrowth.com. And uh, one last other one that I think is a uh, great uh, read is called Life Lessons. Uh, two experts on death and dying, and it is at www.goodreads.com. So I hope these will get you on um, your way. And uh, never last, uh, but uh, for those of us who are grounded in our spirituality, the word of God um, is always uh, a great uh, resource uh, to uh, start with and find peace and comfort in um, in our journey in discovery on uh, death and dying. So with that being said, uh, have a good evening. Please stay safe. Uh, if you have not taken advantage of early early voting, please do so. Have a good evening.